Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We had been in Luke's gospel previously and we'll return there, but these last couple of weeks are also looking at some other gospel texts. We were in Mark last week and now we find ourselves in Matthew, particularly as we are recognizing and honoring the season of Lent. And so here on the second Sunday of Lent, we want to look at Matthew chapter 4 and read verses 1 through 11 together. It's also printed for you there on page 6 of the bulletin, but again, if you're turning in your own Bible, then Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Yet again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever and ever. Amen. Was Jesus really tempted? Or should that word be in air quotes? The temptation of Christ, could he really have sinned? Or is this just a nice idea that we console ourselves with? After all, he's God, is he not? If you've ever asked these questions, then rest assured that you are perfectly normal, okay? You don't have to be afraid if you ask those questions or even ask them today. In fact, perhaps you are a good theologian for good theology, as we know, often starts with hard questions. If you've ever asked these questions, again, it's because if you think about it, we as fallen creatures, we as Humans often don't have the capacity, the capacity for something or someone who would be so gracious, so merciful, so condescending, but in the right sense of the word, as God himself. Someone, in other words, who would willingly subject themselves to our fate. We don't have capacity for that because no one lives like that. <laughs> If you think about it, we're people who are conditioned, if you will, 
to commercials and so forth, you know, places that feature celebrities who appear to be like us. They endorse products and they endorse lifestyles that, that are akin to, you know, in helping us to see they're just like us. They're, they're multimillionaires. They have celebrity status. But look, they still drink a Diet Pepsi, right? Or they still do whatever. They're just like us. They still get their insurance from State Farm, you know, or whatever it might be. Celebrities that, that is supposed to look just like us, but we are left, if you're like me, from those commercials wondering, is this real? Is this, is this real? Is Patrick Mahomes really sitting down at the state, local state farm agency and getting his you know, auto insurance? Or is this contrived? That's how we think. That's how we're conditioned to think because of the society and the culture in which we live. We're used to celebrities showing up for the food drive photo shoot, you know, the Salvation Army, Habitat for Humanity, the promotional shoot, but when the lights go off, we, we're left asking, are they really there? Are they really passing out the turkeys, or are they just there for the camera, and then once the camera goes away, they're gone? You know, what's, what's really happening here? What, what is going on? So as we find ourselves here in the second Sunday of Lent, a time of intentional refocus on Christ's humility and sacrifice, a time of intentional rededication, hopefully, to our own self-deference and our own posture of self-denial, a setting aside of earthly appetites to, again, hopefully refocus our appetites on heavenly things, the temptation of Christ here is pivotal. And the temptation of Christ here, in all of its fullness, is, is really the paradigm for Lent. As you heard me mention last week, Jesus, as we know, spends here 40 days in the wilderness and we now use that as the paradigm to celebrate and to honor and to mark the 40 days which lead us up to Easter Sunday. That just as Jesus here fasted and denied himself, though he was God, we too then, in similar fashion, perhaps fast from something in our lives. Perhaps you, you do honor Lent in that way. If you don't, that's okay too. There's no command in Scripture for such things. But in the, in, the, in the helpful way to kind of get us in the mindset of what this is supposed to be about, perhaps we then too, following Christ's example, fast from something in order to intently focus more on God. Or as we saw here, just as Jesus, though he was the word made flesh, though he was God himself, like I mentioned, still relied on holy scripture, as we, as we heard him quote time and time Again, and he uses it in his fight against the devil, his fight against temptation, well then so too should we, again, during this season, find ourselves more reliant, more running into that strong tower, again, which is Holy Scripture for us as well. You see, to read this passage as anything less than a real temptation of Jesus, the God-man, Though that's a question we may ask, and we're, and we're right to do so, it would be wrong. It would be wrong. And it would be wrong for two reasons that we see here in this text. It's the, the reality of the Messiah and the role of the Messiah. The reality of the Messiah, as we see it here, even early in Christ's ministry, and the role of the Messiah. You see, the great scandal of Christianity 
The stumbling block that Paul will later identify in his letters, the stumbling block for for Jews in his day, the foolishness to, to Gentiles in his day, the great scandal of Christianity, and what continues to separate it from every other religion under the sun, and if you think about it, what even continues to be the source of ridicule today for many who don't believe is precisely the reality of Jesus in full human flesh. Full human flesh, though he is God. It's tempting for us to think of him just playing a role here or or him just putting on a costume, as it were. Again, because we live in a culture which has so conditioned us to see, again, these high and lifted up folks who then only appear in, in sort of, you know, Example, but not in reality. In fact, you might remember, we've looked at this passage before, you might remember that this very idea was debated even in the earliest days of the church. That it didn't take long, even in the early days of the church. In fact, if you're looking for a great book on church history, I'd highly recommend a book called Church History in Plain Language, which is written by a gentleman named Bruce Shelley. He was an esteemed professor of theology at Denver uh, theological seminary, but church history in plain language. It reads like a novel. So it takes, you know, archaic events and even dry events at times. It puts them in very vivid language and very, very great reads. So church history in plain language. But you might remember that it didn't take long for the early church to be full of teachers or even skeptics who had difficulty wrapping their minds around how this idea of the incarnation was possible. And if they weren't careful, in an attempt to not seem silly to the world, when they talked about Jesus, again, as fully God and fully man, they would put things in terms or in ways that were a little less supernatural. But in doing so, again, weren't being faithful to Scripture as we see it here. And if you think about it, the same thing can be happening in our day as well. Isn't that true? The same temptation is still at work. Think about conversations that you have maybe with folks in your workplace or or maybe family members who aren't believers. You know, think about questions such as, you know, were Adam and Eve real people? Or is it just sort of like a literary, you know, metaphor or literary friend? Were they real, real people? Was there really a worldwide flood or have we gone kind of overboard in that thinking? Pun intended, okay? So worldwide flood, right? Or to to think of, you know, think about being overboard. What about Jonah, right? I mean, was he really swallowed by a giant fish and spit out? I mean, mean, how does this work? Was Jesus really born of a a virgin? How about those walls around Jericho or, or the Red Sea or... Whatever it may be, you see the temptation is always present. Whether it's in the earliest days of the church or to our day, to take the accounts of Holy Scripture and because of those impeding voices from the outside, to to sort of dull the edges of the supernatural in a way that then becomes more palatable to the outside world, but in a way that strips the very gospel of its power. It strips the very Scripture of its power. The incarnation, the full deity of Jesus, and yet his full humanity was no show, it was no mere costume, 
but it was debated from the beginning. In fact, as you know, councils arose to sort of iron out these doctrines and to put them in ways where we could then remember them and recite them and pass them down to our children. There's a reason why even we, this morning, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed in a few moments before we come to the Lord's table. Why? That we might cement these ideas into our heads, that, that we might pass them even on to our children as they hear them. Because the voices they hear the other six days of the week want to undermine that. And so we come and preach again to ourselves that we might hold dear to what is really true. That we might hold dear to what is really foundational. One of the earliest councils, the Nicene Council in 381, puts it this way. And, and you'll notice even some overlap with the Apostles' Creed. But when, but when speaking particularly of this account and the idea of, of Jesus being fully God, fully man, how is he fully tempted but yet fully faithful? How will he fall asleep in a boat and yet in the very same moment calm the, calm the storms with his words? How is this possible? The Nicene Creed puts it this way. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made. But then hear the turn from his divinity to his humanity, who for us men and women, and for our salvation came down from heaven, and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became man. And he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered, and was buried, and the third day he rose again. You see, the earliest church went to great detail to, to solidify this doctrine in its councils and in its creeds, because they understood, and we must as well, that to have a Messiah who is anything less than real flesh and blood is to have a Messiah who then affects something less than a real salvation. And that was the earliest testimony that we see, even very, very young there, in the church. And it was their testimony because it's also the testimony of Scripture, not just in its doctrinal formulations, like we're sort of talking about here, but also if you get into the narratives of scripture, we see the same thing true. What is often the reaction of people to Jesus in scripture? Have you noticed that? What's, what's the reaction most common to Jesus in scripture? If you notice, it's actually less shock at the miracles that he's performing, and it's more shock, if you will, at who's performing them. Think about that. Think of the, the questions that come to him. Isn't this Jesus of Nazareth? Can, can anything good come from there? Isn't this the carpenter's son? You see, they're, they're, they're stumbling over the ordinariness of Jesus, how painfully ordinary he is, in fact. Because we have a tendency, even today, to, to caricature Jesus. We have, we have flannel graph Jesus, right? who's always smiling and has like a beam of light over his head at all times, or we, we can make like comic book Jesus, right? Where he is chiseled and he has, you know, bulging biceps and he is like 
more akin to Hercules or maybe even Samson, to use a biblical example. He, he, we want him to be the Marvel superhero in the cape, but instead what we see in Scripture is that he's fully man with all the limitations of man, hunger and thirst and fatigue. Again, think of the example of him on the boat where after a long day's work, he's exhausted and he falls asleep even though his disciples are freaking out about the weather which is coming in on the horizon. You see, it is nothing less than a mystery for how this works exactly, fully God and fully man, but for our purposes today, and particularly in Lent, it's incredibly meaningful. Because if you're like me, perhaps you struggle was something even you know, so basic as fasting, or you struggle with having a season where we actually actively work to deny ourselves and to be self-deferential. We struggle in this earthly life only then to come to Scripture and find we have a Messiah who is eminently relatable, not exempt from those very same struggles, not exempt from those very same temptations, but eminently relatable. A Messiah who came to effect a real salvation for people like us, people in our frailty. And again, we see this in his temptation account. He's led by the Spirit, we're told, into the wilderness. He's brought to a place of temptation just like we are. Not because God wills it in some way where he is you know, hoping for us to stumble or, or putting some kind of unnecessary you know, test in our path. But because, and in a way, where God is still providential, but in pro- being providential has given us free will. Has given us our own volition. And in doing so, allows them the possibility for us to break the good things that he gives us. And we know that starts all the way back in the garden. That we break the good world that he has made. And now then we inhabit such a broken world and we experience the effects of it being broken. And we languish now under the temporary rule of the evil one. And we see that even here with Jesus. Notice how the evil one here in his temporary rule is like a pawn shop owner. He's you know, kind of trying to bargain with Jesus. You know? hey, Jesus, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you all you know, the kingdoms of this world. But what it speaks to is this temporary reign that he has been given, that God in his mysterious providence has allowed, but has not abandoned us. Has not abandoned us, but has allowed again for a time that we might actually be more conformed into his image. We see in the Old Testament with Job, as the sons of God come before the throne, and God actually permits them for a time to tempt and to to lead someone like Job. And of course, we see it here with Jesus, and if we're honest, we see it in our own lives. But again, the beauty of the gospel is that God is with us. That Jesus, as fully God and fully man, is with us, never leaving us or forsaking us, but strengthening us for the task. And we can trust him and we can look to him, again, because we know he is not exempt himself, but is relatable and was victorious. Think about how Hebrews 4 puts it. The author writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we would receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Nothing that we encounter, nothing that we endure, nothing that we have to undergo is something that Christ himself in his temptation, in his humanity, cannot relate to. And if you think about it even, he here as the incarnate one is face to face with the evil one and fighting him head on. Whereas we, even in our temptation, are dealing with the secondary effects of, of the evil one, if you want to think of it that way. None of us, thankfully, has stood face to face with the evil one, but Christ himself here has. And we know that he lives to tell the tale, so to speak. We know that he is victorious, that Jesus is not the high commander who sits on the hilltop and is playing war games, right? Directing the, the troops here and the soldiers there, but, but himself removed from the battle. In fact, we see here in Matthew 4, he is on the front lines of the battle, face to face against the, the, the commanding officer of all evil, and yet is victorious. And that's helpful for us because then we, as ones who are dealing with the collateral effects of the evil one's temporary reign, and we as the ones who deal with the secondary effects of our broken world, again, we can look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the one who went before us, the trailblazer, the pioneer, and again, find mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. As Hebrews puts it, we see again, the reality of the Messiah. But then finally, we see here, in beautiful sort of literary form, the role of the Messiah. And we see it here in this substitutionary way, how, how Jesus in his role is greater. Uh, it's spring training currently. If you follow baseball, you know that, that spring training uh, just opened up. And spring training is one of my favorite times of the year. As you know, I am a uh, delusional sports fan and very, very uh, encumbered by my allegiance to South Florida sports. Well, spring training then is one of my favorite times of the year. The six or so weeks that lead us up to opening day of uh, the major league season. Well, as you know, spring training originally started uh, because, if you can believe this, I know you can, baseball players used to have second jobs Right? They didn't make so much money as they do today. They had second jobs in the offseason. They'd have to come back to spring training and actually get back into baseball shape. You know, Florida or Arizona, the Cactus League, the Grapefruit League, and work themselves back into major league shape. Well, now that's not necessary because they only have one job and a very handsomely paying job at that. But spring training is still a fun time. Uh, you know, to bring the family to a ball game, it's smaller stadiums, it's usually smaller crowds, it's cheaper tickets, and you're closer to the action. Uh, I, love, I love spring training. But the tip, if you don't already know this, is to try to go to spring training as late in the season as possible, as close to the opening day as possible. Why? Because by then, usually... The, the major league players who will be there on the full roster are playing. 
Right? Early in the season, it's still like rookies or it's still, um, you know, people who might be trying to make the team, but there's no guarantees. And so the baseball is good, but not as good as it will be at the end of the spring when the superstars are playing. When they get together on the diamond and you go, oh, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what it looks like in its fulfillment. This is what it looks like in its full effect or, or full force, if you will. This is the culmination of the team coming together. Well, in a way, that's exactly what's happening here if you follow the narrative arc of Scripture in Matthew 4. All who went before Jesus were types. All who went before Jesus were shadows of the real thing. They're like the, the, the rookie ball player, if you will, but the superstar is coming. They're the ones on the team, don't get me wrong, but the, the seasoned veteran, the power hitter, okay, the superstar is coming. All who went before Jesus are, yes, in this same broken world that we've been talking about that we ourselves are part of, but all who went before Jesus also failed at some level. And that's true of every patriarch in the Old Testament. And it's true, as you know, primarily with the two kind of motifs we're given of Adam and Israel. Adam, too, if you think about it, encountered Satan in a garden in a wilderness place, so to speak, when Adam was the representative of humanity. And we know that Jesus himself will encounter this same tempter in a garden. We talked about it in our prayer, the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam, too, was tempted by Satan, just like Jesus was here, to distrust the word of God. Not the written word, that didn't exist yet, but think about our time in Genesis, the spoken word of God. The audible word of God. Adam lived in a time we can only imagine where he was able to commune with God face to face. God spoke to him like one friend speaks to another. God gave him commands and prohibitions and guidance and instruction. And then what does the tempter do? All the way back in Genesis, he wants Adam to doubt it. Did God really say did God really say you shall not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden? Adam was tempted to distrust the plan and providence and purpose of God in favor of his appetites. Did God really say you shall not eat of the fruit? And then here to Jesus, if you truly are the Son of God, then why can't you do this? If you are the Son of God, then why did the Father not allow for X, Y, and Z? In both instances, Satan calls the first Adam and then here the second Adam to doubt the intention of God for their good. With Adam, it was questioning God's restrictions. And again, here the same is true for Jesus. Hey, Jesus, Satan says, you're hungry. You're hungry. Where's God's provision? Where is his goodness? Have you ever asked similar questions in your life? Where is God's provision? God, I'm 
hungry, perhaps literally, perhaps spiritually, perhaps emotionally. God, I'm in need of something. I'm lacking something. Where are you? Where is your goodness? Where is your provision? Where is your purpose in this trial? God, have you forgotten me? You see, Jesus here in his temptation answers these questions by reminding us that there is more to life than stuff. More to life than the material. Our physical appetites, but we literally live off of God's word. That even our very existence is dependent upon God's word making it so. A word that will ultimately never leave us or forsake us. A word which will ultimately take the good work that it's begun and carry it to completion, as Paul writes elsewhere in one of his letters. And again, we see that by Jesus here making plain to Satan that he cannot twist God's character, but he goes back to the word written itself. And so here, again, he succeeds in a way that the first Adam failed. He doesn't doubt the word of God, doesn't twist it, but goes back to it in its original form and proves himself to be the greater Adam, the second Adam, the better Adam. Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Notice this, as he is faithful in a way that the first Adam was not, and then gives us an example, now if we're found in him, of how we can counteract the devil's schemes in our own life as well. And notice how Jesus here, when he chooses to respond back to Satan, in all three examples we're given. There's verse 4, if you look in your Bible, look for the red print if you have that, right? Verse 4, verse 7, verse 10. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, it might show you that all of these responses from Jesus are taken from where? Deuteronomy. Taken from the Torah, taken from the time when Israel, again, Jesus is the greater Adam, and he's also the greater Israel, and he quotes here from a time, namely Deuteronomy, when Israel themselves were in the wilderness. Just like he is here. He's like Adam in the garden, He's like Israel in the wilderness because he is the greater Israel. Israel is often spoken of in the Old Testament as God's son, commissioned to be a kingdom of priests, to represent God to the nations, called to be a light to the world around them. But Israel, like Adam, also faltered. They were ensnared by temptations. They were ensnared by those around them. But again, where Adam failed and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And we see it here in the fact that he quotes from Deuteronomy and connects himself to that very same time in the wilderness when Israel had to trust God for bread. When they were hungry like Christ is and were tempted to run back to the gods of Egypt just like we're tempted in our need to look elsewhere from God 
But we see here again that Jesus is faithful. That Jesus, as the Son of God, just like Israel came out of Egypt. If you look in Matthew 2, verse 15, Christ is called out of Egypt as a youth. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized just like Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. And then Jesus, after coming out of Egypt and the Red Sea, where does he go? Well, he goes right here in chapter 4 to the wilderness, like Israel, tempted by his hunger to forsake God, tempted to test the Lord, his plan, his patience, his methods, tempted to bow to another like Israel was, bowing to the gods of the other nations. But again, where they all failed, Christ succeeded. And where we fail and where we falter, he succeeds for us as well. Again, think in your own life. Have you, in your hunger and need, ever looked to something other than God? Have you or I ever tried the Lord's patience and doubted his plan or questioned his methods? We all have. And perhaps this season of Lent is a reminder of that. Again, an intentional time where we are reminded of our own indulgence or, or selfishness. And we're given this time to wrestle with it, to, to, to do some self-examination and to hopefully repent and to rest. And hopefully as we do, we don't do it in our own strength. Because if it's just a 40-day period to kind of check the box, then what happens after that? You see, we don't do it in our own strength, but we do it instead as a response to what God has already done and what Christ shows us here. That where we continually fail, continually fail, Christ succeeded. And he succeeded in real flesh and blood, in the real darkness of this world. And his success is ours by faith. The greater Adam the greater Israel, the one who worshipped and served the Lord perfectly, who endured every trial and temptation perfectly. That where Adam lost the garden and the tree of life, Christ restores it. And where Israel lost the promised land, again, Christ restores it, the greater promised land, the heavenly Jerusalem that is to come for all of us who trust him by faith. As we close, remember the lyrics of this great song which the temptation account points us to and wants us to hear afresh. When Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there, the Jesus who made an end to all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are with us even now. That you are with us through the power of your Holy Spirit. 
that Christ came for us to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. Father, we thank you for his performance on our behalf, his perfection, him standing condemned in our place that we might inherit, as we heard in the beginning of our service, every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Father, we thank you that Christ is strong where we are weak, that Christ is faithful where we are faithless. Father, would that remind us again of who we are? And would his example then ultimately inform our submission to his lordship that we would strive for obedience, that we would strive to know and do your will, and that you would bless us with the strength and endurance to do so. But when we fail and when we falter, would you pick us back up and would you refix our gaze on Jesus, the one who never fails, and the one to whom we are continually being conformed and the one to whom we will be finally and fully conformed in glory. But until then, Lord, would you bolster our faith afresh, we ask. Again, for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.